This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology by Martha Elias Downey. This book invites readers to expand their theological, spiritual, and relational horizons by sidestepping the notions of hierarchy and verticality. Go Wide employs the lens of spaciousness to explore biblical stories, theological concepts, and the nature of God, showing how biblical narratives often disrupt the status quo. If you are looking for an accessible, inclusive, fresh take on an ancient course of study, pick up Go Wide, Reimagining the Landscape of Theology, now available on Amazon. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast, game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're continuing our conversation about, oh, cheerful topics like apocalypse, end days, and historical trauma by looking at Sherman Alexie's poem, which uses lots of biblical imagery and ends with the image of a pale horse riding into a powwow. I'm your host, Jean Patrol. And I'm your other host, Jennifer Bird. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. Good to be here again with you. Would you mind reading that poem? We should review the poem. Do you mind? I think we should just jump right into that. Yeah, I'm happy to read it. Crow Testament by Sherman Alexie. One. Cain lifts crow, that heavy black bird, and strikes down. Abel. Damn, says Crow. I guess this is just the beginning. 2. The white man, disguised as a falcon, swoops in and yet again steals a salmon from Crow's talons. Damn, says Crow. If I could swim, I would have fled this country years ago. 3. The Crow God, as depicted in all of the reliable Crow Bibles, looks exactly like a crow. Damn, says Crow, this makes it so much easier to worship myself. 4. Among the ashes of Jericho, Crow sacrifices his firstborn son. Damn, says Crow, a million nests are soaked with blood. 5. When crows fight crows, the sky fills with beaks and talons. Damn, says Crow, it's raining feathers. Six. Crow flies around the reservation and collects empty beer bottles, but they are so heavy he can only carry one at a time. So, one by one, he returns them, but only gets five cents a bottle. Damn, says Crow, redemption is not easy. Seven. Crow rides a pale horse into a crowded powwow, but none of the Indians panic. Damn, says Crow, 
I guess they already live near the end of the world. Thank you for that. I love yes. hearing it read different ways. Sometimes when I'm teaching, four different people will read a poem. Listeners, I invite you to read the poem out loud for yourself. Poetry is made to be read out loud, and you discover different things when you get the actual words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. So I invite mm -hmm. everyone to read the poem out loud. This poem is available on the internet. Sherman Alexie makes it available. I will link to it in our episode notes. So I invite everyone to give it a whirl. Last time, we talked about this ending image, that last line, none of the Indians panic, they already live near the end of the world. And we spoke about how for Native Americans, it's not so much the end of the world, meaning the end of the planet, but this idea of apocalyptic rhetoric or apocalyptic thinking as it's the end of the world as we know it. And then something new is beginning. And that right. resonated with you. And we talked about the tone of this and what Alexi does with the apocalyptic imagery in there is very generative, I think, very creative. And he turns apocalyptic rhetoric to different uses than some of the places in culture where it's used. And this is a very, very productive use. Um, we also spoke about apocalyptic literature as a literary genre that responds to historical trauma. You filled us in about the historical trauma that was besetting Jewish people and the earliest followers of the Jesus way, many of whom were Jewish, obviously, mm -hmm. all of them to begin with, mm -hmm. and the historical trauma that they were living through it sounded like you were appreciating the idea of apocalyptic as a genre being a form of historical thinking. Like before there was history as the field that we know, before history there was poetry. And before history there were other kinds of writing. And they also tried to address history. So that's what I remember where we left off. Did you want to say anything about the ground we've already covered? I think... The thoughts in my mind right now are more about wanting to talk about the some of the negative pieces. I do appreciate what apocalyptic literature can help us to do. I really don't enjoy apocalyptic mm. literature in the biblical context. Mm -hmm. And that's you have seen my resistance mm -hmm. when we bring this up, up this topic. And it's because I don't resonate personally with the extreme situations that these people are living in. I don't enjoy the violent rhetoric. I don't enjoy the, the reveling in the violence and the vengeance mm -hmm. and the, you know, this, this God is victorious. This God is going to conquer all. And, and this, that whole militaristic language, the framing that way, all of those pieces of it, I tend to see around us in maybe not so such extreme ways, but I see the same kinds of bloodthirst, and I don't like that. You know, I used to kind of think of it a little more literalistically, but even then, I just didn't find it appealing. And so that's the piece about apocalyptic literature I wanted to comment on. 
I do think a lot of it in the ancient world was much more vengeful and violent. And that 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 tells us something about the people, the people who were writing it, not just just the extreme situations they were in, but that would feel good to them to do that or to see their enemies demise in this kind of a way. I I don't want to deny that that is where some people are, but I don't find that useful personally. And I find it to be a detrimental thing to our culture. Yeah. And that's why when we turn to current writers who are doing something different with it, I can resonate with that. I can appreciate that. I can see what they're doing. So it was important to me to comment on those elements of ancient, ancient apocalyptic literature, right? That it, that are, that just don't work for me. Yes. Yes. And a way to say, okay, that is what they're doing. And then there's a part of that, that current writers are doing something different with. They do it to a different end, right? Than what we typically see in ancient apocalyptic literature. Yes. Also, certain writers like Alexi, like Octavia Butler, Samuel Delaney, Tony Kushner, use apocalyptic rhetoric very differently than the way it's used in contemporary politics. Because I hear what you're saying, that the ancient apocalyptic rhetoric is violent and vengeful and unhelpful. Mm -hmm. And I want to add that people still use it that way. And I, I and I don't want to minimize that. Also, in regard to the really problematic imagery in Revelation to John, I know we'll get to this, but it's the portrayal of women's bodies. And in particular that I'm I'm using air quotes. Jennifer can see me, but no one else can air quotes. <laughs> whore of Babylon, right? The right, right. Whore, whore of Babylon. I want us to get to that because I think it's really important to look straight at aspects of this work of literature that create damage in the world outside yes. literature. The literature that yes. we read, especially in the Bible, you probably, this is true, I think, with a lot of literature and movies. And TV shows, I think our imaginative worlds affect the worlds that we're building outside. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a very important. Sorry, I kind of jumped in on that. Like, that is a very important thing to me, right? Yeah. Our language, the Mm -hmm. things we create, where we put our attention and time and energy and ideas. Yes. Even our image sphere, like to have certain. You know, the imaginary and the imaginal, the image yes. sphere in our minds, like we create some things outside yes. of literature, outside of movies that are affected. Not that we don't understand the difference. It's just that right. it's a permeable boundary. Yes. That's a really great way of putting it. Yeah. Yes. What is populating that dreamscape for you that might then impact the way you're creating in the real world? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Important to me, too. Well, let's. Treat our listeners to some contemporary biblical scholarship that, in plain language, Jennifer and I like to speak plainly. So, yes. <laughs> um, and we might read a little bit of maybe some kind of heavy going <laughs> scholarship, but, you know, we're going to talk about it in ordinary language. And the, the first person I wanted to bring in is Catherine Keller. So, I really yes. like her work on. Apocalyptic. And one of Keller's most significant 
points is that apocalypse in rhetoric can precipitate violent or deadly behavior in the real world because it's imagined end point, like the imagined end point of any apocalyptic rhetoric is the defeat of evil and the arrival of a perfect order. And if that's your attitude, it justifies a lot of terrifying behavior. I mean, for example, if you're thinking that the world is going to end, well, why take care of the environment? And there are really concrete things that we can point to, and maybe we'll talk about them a little bit later, where actual policy, I mean, Ronald Reagan was a literalist, read Revelation, literally had a fundamentalist mother, and he had some fundamentalists in his administration, and they based environmental policy on the assumption that the world was going to end. Like, why limit your use of fossil fuels if the world is ending anyway, right? We only have maybe a generation, so what the heck, right? Right, right. It can create a WTF Exactly. Yes. Um, which is can be very dangerous. And the piece that I want to bring in from Keller is Keller says, thinks of apocalyptic as a cultural apocalypse script, a metaphor, a fatal pattern in human thought and behavior that that could lead to the end of democracy. And it could lead to climate catastrophe. There are other things that it can lead to. And that's both interesting and scary to me. I want to mention one other book. Casey Ryan Kelly wrote this book. It's called Apocalypse Man. Demonstrates a really clear connection between apocalyptic thinking and public spectacles of mass violence. Documents the role of apocalyptic thought and rhetoric in masculinist white American subcultures that are really dangerous, like that believe in using violence as a political weapon, doomsday preppers, men's rights activists, incels who become or who celebrate mass shooters, open carry proponents, insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. There's documented evidence of apocalyptic thinking and rhetoric in the published writings of many of those folks. So it is very serious. Hey, let's go to a break. And then when we come back, I would like to hear what you're reading about, like what biblical scholarship has influenced your thinking. Let's go there next. Okay. That sounds like a good idea. Okay. So take it away. I just did a lot of talking. I want to hear from you. The book that you referenced last, I think, is is just such important research. It's such an important way of saying these aren't just scriptures (laughs) or these aren't just in that collection over there. This way of thinking impacts people. I like to think about the work I do as taking things doing a materialist read. In what ways do these stories, scriptures, sacred, whatever you want to call it, how do they become manifest in our lives, in our thinking, in the way we treat each other, 
So a material reading in that kind of a sense. The, the scholars I'm most interested in do something similar. And the one book, I haven't read her entire book, but it's, and it's a meaty one. So I'm not actually going to discuss what she says, but I want to reference this scholar, Erin Runyons. She teaches at Pomona College, full professor there. But her book, The Babylon Complex, the subtitle is Theopolitical Fantasies of War, Sex, and Sovereignty. Mm. So she's, yeah, she's interrogating the way some people do use biblical rhetoric mm-hmm. in political settings. She's also interested in the incarcereal. So talking about, you know, the new Jim Crow, you know, talking about the way these these systems overlap. But the scholar whose work I wanted to reference more specifically today is is actually a professor at Drew Theological Seminary. His name is Stephen Moore, and he tends to be a bit edgy. He like I mean, he likes to be that, you know, he's trying to find ways to push the boundaries of the way we think about the Bible or biblical texts. And so he brings theoretical lenses to his scholarship. And so sometimes it's not very accessible. But what I found incredibly helpful for whatever reason to me, as I was I was actually reading through one of his books called um, God's Beauty Parlor, which is one of his earlier books from 2001. And he, there's a lot of autobiography in that. But he's uh, he's from Ireland. His mother was a beautician. His father, I can't remember, was he a farmer? I can't remember. But he's from rural Ireland. But he's wickedly sharp man, right, intellectually speaking. And so he brings this together. What, what I saw him doing in the final essay in this book for whatever reason, helped me even to, to, to put together why the book of Revelation bothers me so much. And so what he was doing in this essay is he was taking some of the content or talking about the book of Revelation, and he was literally putting it parallel on the page to passages from the book of four Maccabees or from the, uh, the Irish epic and I spent quite a bit of time trying to figure out how to pronounce this correctly, Dine Bokulnia. Mm. And the the hero in that is Kukulian, mm-hmm. something like that. I'm not, it's not quite right, but it's close. So I'm going to read part of what he's saying about his writing just to, so our listeners can hear it. But, but ultimately what he did in pairing these, he's putting the book of Revelation next to the book of Fourth Maccabees, which is in itself tells of martyrdom of many Jewish men. And this this epic, this Irish epic, also celebrates, you know, this warriorship, this militarism. And it has been useful in trying to counter recent colonization or the colonization of minds, really. Um, so I'm going to read from his introduction where he's explaining what's happening. He says, starting from the observation that warfare was the quintessential performance of masculinity, right? So this is how men proved that they were men in the ancient Mediterranean world. He's exploring the gender dynamics in the book of Revelation. And so he does that by pairing it with these martyr texts. And he says, Revelation can plausibly be said to be about the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. I think if you read to the end, you'll see that, right? We have God's kingdom descending out of the heavens, something new on earth. 
And so he says, and how is this kingdom established? Through a war. And what is that war? It's an activity, right, where exclusively male subjects, this is on a symbolic level, right, showing their masculinity, and it is exclusively directed at these monsters or not exclusively, but also directed at feminine bodies. So we have these beasts, these monsters, as you called them last time. But we also have, again, as you referenced with these air quotes, the whore of Babylon. We have a city being feminized and then conquered or raped or tortured, battered, whatever, right? This, this script, this war scroll of Revelation is often read in such a way that we don't pay attention to the gore and to how violent and awful it is. And in fact, I used to sing some of these songs, some of the lyrics from this book in praise, in praise and worship, and not pay attention to all the intensity. So, so when he put it right next to this very, very intense epic. It was like, oh, yeah, it just fills in between with the lines with all the blood and gore. And so I know I'm not doing his work justice, I suppose, here, but I'm, I'm trying to highlight that in a sense, similar to what you are doing for us in this whole season in bringing in other poets or other authors and their work to say that's how they're taking biblical texts. He's doing something similar, I think. And I'm going to read from the end of his description here. The purpose of the Irish epic, the Dine, in the way that he's engaging it, is to frame the book of Revelation. Whereas Revelation is a muted celebration of war, although that's also to be debated, the Dine is a garish celebration of mm. war. Superimposed upon Revelation, the Dine, too, colors in its blanks with lurid hues. Revelation is a Christian war scroll, but the dine is what this war scroll would look like fully unfurled. Mm. The themes of masculinity and mass death are intimately intertwined in Revelation, which turns out to be a book about war, making men, making war, making men, some of whom also happen to be gods. So I, I like Stephen Moore's play of play with words, but not just because the play with words is fun, but because it makes it easy to kind of come at it from the backside and say, oh, this is messy. This is gross. Right. Mm. This is violent. Yeah. What does that say? Right. What are we doing if we are saying that that's who God is or that that's how God is going to fix yeah. the, the world, the problems of the world is to do something devastating and violent and horrific and calling women names and casting them aside and using their bodies and thinking nothing of it. What what is that teaching people to do and think? <laughs> yeah, these are really important questions. Very yeah. important questions. I think they are. Yeah. Keller would call the Irish epic that you're talking about? Yes, yes. A retro apocalypse. She identifies kind of a list, like she's got a taxonomy or a nomenclature of different forms of apocalypse and apocalyptic rhetoric. And she calls like Reagan-style apocalyptic thought retro-apocalypse. 
she also talks about there's also and we're talking about more contemporary iterations of apocalyptic mm-hmm. rhetoric, mm-hmm. contemporary uses of the genre. There's retro apocalypse, utopian apocalypse, imagining an end followed by some kind of glorious beginning. Mm-hmm. I think you could argue that some Octavia Butler is a utopian apocalypse. Absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah. And crypto apocalypse is a really interesting one. She said that crypto apocalyptic thinking is when it, it's that it's a psychosocial habit where we binarize our own like social categories. So she says it's a semi-conscious so, psychosocial habit of vilifying one's political or social opponents while positing the inevitability of total destruction. So it can get really, really negative, really dangerous in the world outside literature. Yeah, dark. (laughs) Yes, very dark. She also talks about a counter-apocalypse. So that's, yeah, that's how I think of Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talent. Yeah. Yeah, It's a counter. Yeah, probably closer. Mm -hmm. Um, So it recognizes itself as a kind of an apocalypse, but it tries to interrupt the habit of apocalyptic thinking and apocalyptic mm-hmm. rhetoric and potentially terrible destruction, war, like what you're talking about, a militaristic apocalypse, a climate apocalypse. So Keller says that counter-apocalypse provides a way to fantasize the end of domination, and it's a countercultural code for dissent. And I bring that one up because we're getting close to our end time. And we are going to be ending <laughs> season one. It's so exciting. And yes. moving on to season two. And we have something really exciting planned for season two. And we're going to start it off with a reading. Uh, you know, obviously, we're not going to read the whole thing on the podcast, but we're going to be talking about Tony Kushner's Angels in America, a really, really celebrated epic postmodern play in two parts in which Kushner makes use of a lot of the images from Revelation to John. And we'll be talking about what he's doing with those apocalyptic images. And it's going to be really fun. So we've arrived at the end of season one. And we have. (laughs) Can you believe it? It's It's amazing. It was so fun. Went by really fast. And I just want to say to all the listeners, thank you for joining us to talk about Permission Granted and a whole lot of poetry and lots of ideas. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the season and we're looking forward to our next season, which starts really soon. And we'll tell you more about the release patterns for season two. We know from our stats that most of you download on Fridays, just in time for your weekend workout or weekend driving or weekend house cleaning. So we're not going to do the first and the 15th. We're going to start releasing on Fridays. And well, do you want to tell folks about our season two, Queering the Bible? I would love to. So next season, I'm excited for that, for those conversations. We will be bringing you conversations from LGBTQIA plus writers who use the Bible. They use biblical stories 
to understand and talk about LGBTQIA experiences. Yeah. Very yeah. exciting. We've got I think so. Tony Kushner, Emily Dickinson, um yeah. lots of lots of great writers. Yeah. And Jean, in case some of our listeners maybe don't know what those letters stand for, sure. maybe they've heard it before, but you want to clarify what yeah. we mean by that? For sure. For anybody who might not know, LGBTQIA plus stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual, and their allies, and people we accidentally left out. That's the plus. So, right. um, yeah, it's, that's intersex what it is. Or, yeah, sometimes people say inquiring. So inquiring. just the whole idea mm -hmm. about, yeah, we're thinking about sexual identities and yeah. bodies and all kinds of things related to non-heteronormative <laughs> ideas, really, yeah. and experiences. Yeah. yeah. So that's how we're going to be framing or the theme we're using next time, querying the Bible and maybe throwing some apocalyptic framework at the beginning in particular as well, right? With our Tony Kushner opener. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Um... So anything else you want to add before we end? I can't believe this is it. I know. I know. <laughs> Here we Goodbye, are. season one. It has been fun. Yes, it yeah, has been fun talking been with you, really Jean. Fun. And I've just been, I've loved having all these listeners, all these people letting us know they're enjoying our work. So yeah. it's been, it's been a good season with you. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. Yes. And thank thanks, you, listeners. Jennifer. Yes. And we'll see you in season two. Bye. Bye. Hey, this is Matt Byrne, editor and producer for the podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 16 of Wild Olive. If you like game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell some friends all about Wild Olive. You can find episode notes at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search Wild Olive. Our music is composed by Nick Stubblefield. Email the podcast at connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. We'll catch you next time for more wild conversations. We'll see you then.